it's almost impossible to talk about American history without looking at slavery. The slave trade and slavery became one of the economic foundations of the US throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. But a growing anti-slavery movement created a huge political divide which ultimately led to the American Civil War. Today, it's hard to imagine why anyone would risk their life to preserve the institution of slavery. So in this episode, we are going to take a closer look at those people and their reasons so that we can truly understand why did America ban slavery? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining us from our faculty is Dr. Rebecca Fraser, a historian of 19th century America with a particular interest in the history of African Americans, especially relating to their resistance against slavery and the enslaved experience. Rebecca, welcome. Hello, fantastic to be here and uh, to engage in conversation about this particular topic, mm. which um, is is very, very um, sort of close to my heart in terms of my expertise and, uh, and, and the books and the articles that, that I've written on it. Yeah, so uh, as this is your, your first of hopefully many appearances on the podcast as one of our faculty, uh, do tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, your areas of interest. Okay, so um, I'm an associate professor, which just means an academic, um, of uh, American history in uh, American studies at UEA. And so um, my um, specialist areas of, of interest concern African-American history in 19th century America, particularly concerning slavery and the resistance of, of African-Americans against the, the systems of, of that institution. But also I've just completed a book on uh, black female intellectuals of 19th century America, um, which looks at various black women who um, were kind of primary in terms of the fight for racial justice um, in that period. Um, but thinking about novelists, thinking about artists, thinking about women who edited newspapers. So, um, so yeah, it's quite um, diverse in its, uh, its reach. Um, so, so yes. Amazing. Yeah. And we will put a little link to, uh, to, to plug your book in the show notes so people can find it and buy it and read it and enjoy it. And full disclosure as well, I can I can personally vouch for your expertise, Rebecca, because I was your student back in the day. So, yeah, although I'm not sure how much that says about you, but I can I can certainly say <laughs> you were very, very good. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's dive into uh, what I'm, I'm sure is going to form many conversations as we go through this podcast because slavery of course is an unavoidable part of American history that that has to be addressed and acknowledged and discussed in all its its unpleasant and, and gory details and one of the things that I think we really need to, to to focus on is exactly how slavery came to be so embedded in in America and and part of that is is trying to understand what that pro-slavery 
mindset was. So mm-hmm. let's go back to the start. How exactly did the slave trade become so huge in the first place? Yeah, okay. So so racial slavery, and by that I mean um, slavery from West Africa through to the Americas um, and, and Europe, it was first established on the North American colonies in 1619. So this is the, the British uh, North American colonies. When the slave ship, the White Lion, carrying enslaved people from the west coast of Africa to the English colony of Virginia, landed at the coastal port of Point Comfort in August of, of that year of 1619. And the ship was owned by an English privateer based in the Netherlands. So already you can see the kind of the transatlantic element here. So this was an English ship. The privateer was was English, but he was based in the Netherlands, and you know, sort of the the Netherlands themselves were major players in the transatlantic trade. And I think the need for labour was paramount among the colonists who came to North America. So the real engine behind the slave system um, and the transatlantic trade was economic, right? So this is not uh, traders going over to West Africa um, with. Um, integral notions of of racism and and racial difference. This was about economics, the need for labour. And there were several systems of labour that really ran parallel to each other in these early years in North America, including um, white indentured um, servitude, so essentially white servants who were coming from Britain, particularly um, the port cities and towns, um, so, you know, sort of Liverpool, London, um, etc. But they would be uh, indentured for five to seven years, and then they were essentially free. So there was labour for those five to seven years, and then they would um, gain their freedom, right? So, you know, sort of, and they would usually get a kind of parcel of land to you know sort of farm etc this was very small uh, in terms of you know sort of the acreage and then there was enslavement of indigenous or, or native native american people but for a variety of reasons this didn't prove financially viable over the longer sort of term indigenous peoples knew the land they knew you know sort of how to escape but also because of the diseases that colonists brought with them from places like you know sort of britain and france and um uh, germany etc natives um tended to die in quite huge numbers so smallpox was you know sort of a, a, a massive killer of native peoples that they had no natural immunity to so with enslaved peoples coming from Africa, these peoples were purchased for life. So in a sense, this was a kind of the, the win-win solution for um, colonists. And we, we see the kind of gradual codification of slavery in legislation through in colonies like Virginia and Maryland, whereby laws were passed that made slavery inheritable through the mother. Um, so um, if an enslaved woman had a child, that child would also be um, enslaved too. Which, so, which then, and then obviously massively incentivizes the slaveholders to, to rape their female slaves because then it's, it's, it's free, free labour, right? Absolutely. So they're gradually enhancing their enslaved populations mm. um, through the um, uh, rape of um, enslaved women. Uh, There were also various other legal codes that created definite markers between who was legally considered free, i.e. white people, and who was um, considered a slave, um, i.e. those of African descent. So that's how it really sort of starts. But 
we can't forget that this was a transatlantic trade. So there were major players in the in the trade. It did include Britain, and you know, sort of Britain was primary among the um, transatlantic trade. But it also involved other countries, um, including Portugal, Spain, France, and the Netherlands, as I've already said. And they tended to kind of seek monopoly over the the transatlantic world from the early 1500s as we get you know sort of uh, the the kind of colonization of various new sort of lands and territories and conquest and exploration and 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 such like and they sometimes these european nations worked in concert with each other and other times in terms of you know sort of them competing against each other and there's no one you, you can never really put an accurate uh, estimate on how many peoples were trafficked across the, the Atlantic. Some people put the, the figure at 14 million uh, eventually. So, you know, sort of, but, you know, because peoples died en route to, you know, sort of the west coast of Africa, taken from the interior, people died um, aboard the ships uh, across the, the Atlantic. And don't forget as well that, as well as this kind of massive trade, there was also British cities growing very, very rich off the back of the slave trade. So Liverpool, um, London, Bristol, and even now we see the the remnants uh, of of this kind of involvement, their engagement in the trade um, through um, the names of streets. Mm. So Slavers Alley, for example, or you know, sort of the architecture on um, uh, the um, the buildings. Um, in places like Liverpool, you often see um, sort of little African children holding up the pillars of banks, etc. It's got many, many peoples and many, many institutions already established engaged in it. And this was not just an anomaly. This was a, a major trade that, you know, sort of went right through from the early 16th century right through to 1800 seven or eight and mm. um, so the british make the um, transatlantic slave trade illegal from 1807 north america the united states as it then was follows suit and and then um makes it the the transatlantic slave trade illegal from 1808 so that's under jefferson thomas jefferson's um presidency so that that kind of brings us on to then how the slave trade was able to really thrive in the US as its own kind of domestic industry um, mm. because now that it by this point it had been so firmly entrenched in American life it, explain kind of what happens now you know how does it continue to boom if we jump forward a little bit to the American Revolution so we're moving from the colonies uh, America decides that it's um, it's really fed up with being um, taxed um, by in the in the British Parliament and by the British without any representation in you know sort of the British um, government, and so it decides that it's had enough of this and wants to rid itself of, of British tyranny, and engages in the American Revolution in the late 18th century, and this establishes the first modern um, republic, United States of America. Um, and racial slavery was very, very quickly confined to largely the southern states. So um, these states like Virginia and Maryland were once colonies, right? 
with, with slavery. Mm. Um, but once they become uh, um, states in the United States, they move from being uh, colonies um, with slavery to pretty much you know, slave societies. Their whole society is grounded around, you know, sort of slavery, their economics, their way of life. Um, it, it's entrenched. That's not to say that northern states weren't engaged with the, the system of, of slavery itself. The northern states largely outlawed slavery um, in the years after the revolution. And that was pretty much owing to their lack of a need for a system of agrarian labor as they you know, moved much more towards industrialization. Mm. Right, so we're talking about these two systems, economic systems. You've got an agrarian labor system, mostly, in the southern states and you've got this increasingly industrialized uh, economic system in the north and so several northern states um, outlaw slavery pretty much after soon after the the revolution but that being said places like new york and new jersey do not fully outlaw slavery um, until 1827 for New York and 1845 for New Jersey. So, you know, this is something that it's a little bit of a, a kind of, of a lie to say, well, you know, sort of this was a, a southern institution and the north was based on free labour and the, the south was, um, was based on, you know, slave labour. In addition, I think slavery is vital to the national economy at this point. So because the raw produce, um, so things like cotton and tobacco being grown, being cultivated, being harvested in the South by enslaved labor and later sugar in Louisiana um, and other places in the, the Southern states, they were being shipped to places like New England and the textile mills for eventual sale in the internal markets and export to Europe. So slavery is a national system that everybody in the the nation as long as you're white and free benefits from it's right it's interesting because you know i think it's easy to think that you know you've got this big north south divide in in slavery mm -hmm. and therefore that means the south are inherently racist and the north are, are not but actually from what you've said it, it it feels like it wasn't so much a an ideological divide as it was an industrial one yeah, no, absolutely. It was, you know, sort of economic again, right? So it really did depend very much in the wake of, I think, the aftermath of the revolution, so the post-revolutionary period, on the ways in which the northern states um, differed in terms of their economy mm. in, in comparison to um, the southern states. And because the southern states was much more rural, based on this kind of agrarian economy, growing rather than building and purchasing. <laughs> so consumerism really took off in the North in a way that, you know, sort of it didn't in the South. But um, I mean, it did eventually, but it took much longer. So you're seeing um, a development in the North in terms of industrialization, commercialization, urbanization, you know, sort of manufacturing um, used to take place as cottage industries, and then that moved into the factories, etc. Whereas in the South, you have a whole different setup whereby it's um, mostly work is going on on plantations or smaller farms and produce is being grown and harvested and and such like so it was very much a divide based on economics really i think that says a lot really because i think that you know there is definitely this misconception that actually anyone above sort of the north south divide was against mm. slavery and that just wasn't really mm. the case mm. um if we put the money and the economics aside, 
why did people agree with slavery because we we can look back on it now in the 21st century and and, and all agree that it was inhumane and awful and so why <laughs> yeah why indeed <laughs> so um i think what we have to remember when it came to racial slavery in the us it was central to the foundations of the nation for several decades right from the revolution onwards um, and even before that right so and um, when thomas jefferson third president of the united states wrote the declaration of independence and the infamous words of we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and um, that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness he was not including those who descended from the african continent in in those claims to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness most of those descended from the African continent by that point, by the point that Jefferson is writing these words um, subsequently, they were legally property. Enslaved peoples were property. Um, so they were um, human chattels. So they were movable. They were akin to, you know, sort of uh, a horse or a cow that could be, you know, sort of sold for, for a particular you know, price. Um, and the fact that so many presidents from George Washington, first president of the United States in the late 1780s, right through to 1861, 12 presidents through that period were slaveholders, mm. right? So, you know, it, it's integral to the, the very foundations of, of the United States. So Washington held, I think, 300 uh, enslaved peoples at um, Mount Vernon. Jefferson held around 200 enslaved people at his Virginian plantation Monticello, including Sally Hemings, who an enslaved woman who mothered um, several of his children following his wife Martha's death, right? So we, we have, you know, sort of numerous uh, enslavers as um, presidents after that. So in a sense, it worked for the South and for this kind of defence of, of slavery because the fact was um, it was in their interests. It was in the president's interest to defend this system. What what I think is really hard to to, to, to process here is is just the level of hypocrisy when especially when you're in government, you're you're president. So you're championing this idea of this new way of governing, this modern society, you know, liberty, freedom, opportunity for all. And then you go home to your slaves. You know, mm-hmm. how can you balance two like completely polar opposite value systems yeah absolutely well the, the, don't forget though this was normal right this was a normal um way of making money at this point and the whole industry builds up um around um um slavery in the sense of once the um transatlantic slave trade so the uh, international slave trade was abolished in um, the United States, um, this domestic slave trade takes off. And that involved selling um, uh, enslaved peoples from the upper south, so places like Virginia and Maryland and parts of North Carolina and Tennessee, to the lower south, to slave auctions, to slave markets. Mm. So um, 
you're talking um, New Orleans, perhaps, or uh, Natchez in Mississippi. You know, you get a whole industry working. So there'd be um, slave traders, slave um, catchers, hunting uh, escaped um, slaves um, down. You'd even get slave catchers who went up to the north and stole, you know, free um, free black people, so kidnapped them um, and sold them down south as enslaved peoples, which is exactly what happens in the story of, of Solomon Northup, uh, 12 years a slave. So it, it is completely normal. Um, and, you know, and I try to get my students to understand this because it's it's so abhorrent to our 21st century sort of sensibilities mm. to think well how 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 is this even possible particularly in a nation the first you know sort of modern republic it's espousing ideals of liberty equality freedom but we have to remember that this is only for a very very minute cohort of of elite white privileged men uh, those descended from Africa were excluded from those ideals. Women, they couldn't vote. They had no rights of uh, suffrage until, you know, sort of into the, the, the sort of early 20th century, they could not vote. Mm. They had no rights. They were indigenous um, peoples. There's a, you know, a whole horror story there in terms of colonists coming in and then settlers taking the land um, and then removing them to reservation after reservation. So the, the idea deals of the United States that are you know embedded in that declaration of independence are, are very much at odds with what what happens um, and what has been happening in the colonial period and then in the United States through the um, post-revolutionary period into the the 19th century but it, it's primarily because it worked in the favor of those who stood at the very apex of, of the nation mm. so what we're, I think, clearly describing here is is a, a nation that is at heart fundamentally racist, and that wasn't necessarily seen as wrong back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you could even use Lincoln as an example. I mean, he's the great emancipator, and yet there's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually he himself was quite racist. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't mean that he didn't oppose slavery, but he still believed that the, the white Caucasian race was superior to any other. Yeah. So what was it about the early 1800s that led to america banning slavery when it did because it wasn't this epiphany that suddenly actually we're all equal yeah no absolutely and you know there was such a an entrenched view that politically it worked in the favor of those who were in control but also you know sort of Pro-slavery arguments were based on theology in terms of the curse of Ham, Enlightenment theory, and the likes of Scottish philosopher David Hume, who suggested that those descended from Africa were inferior to, you know, sort of white Caucasians. Um, and there was definitely a kind of hierarchy of, of man. And so the idea that, and, and then that turned into this whole kind of pseudoscience where you get Thomas Jefferson in the 1780s, suggesting that the difference is fixed in nature between those descended from Africa and the white population in the United States. Um, And then that morphs into um, doctors like um, Samuel Cartwright, who develops these kind of mental illnesses, um, and they're completely fictitious, among enslaved peoples. One of them's called Draptomania, and uh, essentially it's the the desire for freedom among enslaved peoples and and he mixes he blends this with a kind of a 
uh, Christian scripture, um, whereby he's, he suggests that this is God's will, that um, enslaved peoples are proficient knee benders, um, i.e. They're, they're born to be servile. So this is long in the making, right, the justifications for, for, for racial slavery. And so, but we do have on the other side of that, this really kind of strong anti-slavery movement coming through. Men like Ben Franklin, who, who was actually, uh, who held slaves himself in um, and the very early sort of period of his life. And then, you know, decided that, you know, sort of this was wrong and abhorrent and um, founded one of the first anti-slavery uh, movements in the U United States. Primarily after the, you know, the 1830s, you've got men like William Lloyd Garrison, the um, white abolitionist who was um, the um, editor of the anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, who, you know, sort of writes passionately about why slavery is, is morally um, repugnant. But also you have those who have been enslaved um, and have either escaped from slavery or have been emancipated and they're telling their story now and they're getting their stories published um, through, you know, sort of the abolitionist societies. Um, so men like Frederick Douglass and women like Harriet Jacobs. Yeah, I could provide you with a list of several black abolitionists and um, people um, who have been enslaved, who wrote their, you know, sort of stories down, um, were, were lecturing on the abolitionist circuit. Uh, Harriet Tubman, for instance, who escaped from slavery and then became a, a conductor on the Underground Railroad. So the Underground Railroad was a, a system of, of safe houses, really, from, you know, sort of the South and um, through to, you know, sort of freedom in um, places like Philadelphia. Mm. Um, and then on into places like Canada. I think domestically, there's a big movement going on resisting slavery, but also internationally. I think places like Britain had abolished slavery in throughout its um, colonies, um, so including Canada, including Jamaica, including Barbados, by um, the early 1830s. There was a growing feeling that this is a uh, um, it's an uncivilized thing to be doing, right? But also, um, particularly in places like Barbados and Jamaica, enslaved peoples are not sitting quietly, just contentedly getting on with their work. There's insurrection after insurrection. They're, you know, sort of creating maroon communities, but also they're rioting. And the same was true of the US, but on a smaller um, scale, um, whereby we have several revolts. Um, Nat Turner revolt in, in the early 1830s is, you know, sort of the primary one everyone talks about. But there were smaller you know, sort of insurrections and revolts, even on plantations. And white enslavers were paranoid about these sorts of things, you know, sort of because in many cases, um, enslaved peoples um, on plantations outnumbered enslavers, mm. you know, sort of by quite a large majority. So yeah, I think there are numerous reasons why civil war occurred when it did. We could think about, you know, sort of the election of Abraham Lincoln in the 1850s, sorry, the 1860s, but the uh, the founding of the Republican Party in 1854 with Lincoln as, as leader. And he was not, as you say, Liam, um, uh, he was not an abolitionist. I mean, sort of, that's clear. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of the great emancipator has long been debated. But he was anti-slavery, right? So, and there is a difference. Mm -hmm. But Abraham Lincoln was married to 
a daughter of a slaveholding dynasty, um, Mary Todd, and she came from Kentucky. And it's it's well known that he helped various members of her family. You know, sort of he gave them um, protected passage during the Civil War through you know various routes. So you know, sort of he had you know sort of um, conflicting sympathies, I think. But he he certainly was on the the kind of side of thinking about the the systems of economics and developing, you know, sort of uh, um, those systems in in the best way possible. And it was seen, slavery was an archaic, outdated system. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've, we've gone on a bit of a whistle-stop tour from the colonies right through to um, the Civil War. And there's, there's a lot more that we need to be unpacking, um, as we will throughout this podcast. But let's just entertain ourselves with a hypothetical to, to end end this episode in a parallel universe if, if slavery wasn't as prolific um, in America uh, how different would America have been yeah I was thinking about this and uh, um, it's so difficult to say I mean sort of this idea of playing counterfactual history <laughs> over you know 250 odd years right mm. It's really, really impossible. So, and I think because race relations in modern America are the result of these histories of of racial slavery from its very inception, from, you know, sort of the moment the colonists arrive on those shores, first slaver ship arrives with 20 or so um, enslaved peoples aboard um, from uh, um, West Africa. It's written into the fabric of the nation, that development of white supremacy, that development of white power and privilege um, that always um, means that whether peoples are you know, enslaved um, or whether they are free, they're always seen as less than, right? And it's the same with very many other um, minority communities in the United States. Mm. Um, if you're not a white man over a certain age, so there's there's a power issue involved. But Paul Gilroy um, terms racial slavery as in the Americas as the kind of dark underbelly of modernity, um, and this idea of supposed human progress. And I think that just about sums it up really. Mm. And that has, um, I think, persisted. And you can even see it in, and apologies, because this is a podcast about slavery in the US, but after the Civil War and in terms of Reconstruction and then, you know, sort of on into uh, segregation and, you know, sort of uh, Jim Crow and, you know, and then the, the, the kind of civil rights movement, uh, we can see it in more recent events like Hurricane Katrina, for instance, or alternatively, the um, uh, shooting of unarmed black men by police, right? So to say, what if slavery had not existed in the United States? I think it would be a different nation. I can't even think about what that might mean, really. Um, uh, so, um, so apologies if that's not, it's a bit of a kind of politician's answer, but it just, it seems to me that it was so integral to the, the creation of, of, the, of the American nation. I'd like to think that actually it could be a, a history written without, you know, sort of racial slavery, but it, I don't think it would be possible. This episode of America, a history podcast was produced, edited and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our faculty member this week, Dr. Rebecca Fraser. 
And if you want to find out more about any of the topics discussed in this episode, do check out the resources that we've added to the show notes. If you like the podcast, please do make sure you visit our website. Uh, There's details on there about how you can get in touch and support the show. Uh, Additionally, please do also make sure that you follow and share us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a rating and review, that will help other people find us as well. On the next episode, I'm joined by Dr. Emma Long and the incomparable John Sopel as we discuss how a president's elected. Mm-hmm.